We're reading from 2 Samuel chapter 7. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them any more, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Buddy? Yeah, sure, kid. There you go. And your wallet. Nick, give him your wallet. What for? He's got a knife. <laughs> That's not a knife. That's a knife. That has to be one of my most favourite scenes in any movie. He goes, that's not a knife, this is a knife. I thought that was a fun way to start today because I feel like this passage starts off with, uh, that's not a house, this is a house. And that's what we're here in uh, 2 Samuel, isn't it? David's saying, I'm going to build you a house, God. And God's saying, no, I'll build you a house. And so I'm going to pray for us and we're going to jump into this chapter. So let's do that. Dear gracious God, we thank you for uh, our time in your word right now. Father, we pray that you open our hearts and our minds to your truth. Father, we pray that you speak through your spirit. And Father, where my words fail, may your spirit speak even clearer. And Father, we pray that as we meditate on your word now, that you would teach us, that you would shape us and grow us to be more and more 
as the children you've called us to be. Amen. Well, uh, as Kate wonderfully read for us, and uh, we dive into our Advent series we kicked off last week. No, the second week. Second week? Three weeks. I, I've lost track. We started early, that's all I know. And uh, we're into the, uh, the, the home stretch. Only a few more weeks till Christmas. Here, Ethan and Katie getting their Christmas tree. Anyone else buy a real Christmas tree today? I did. I pre-ordered thinking that that was going to be much easier. I'd be in and out and the line for pre-order was longer than any line I've ever seen before. It took me forever. It made me realise, yes, it's Christmas time. Chaos and queuing. That's what Christmas is all about, isn't it? No? No. Well, if you were here last week, you heard that that's not what Christmas is about. Braden helpfully uh, guided us through that. But when we go through this Advent time, we are taking time to pause and reflect and think about the promises that God made long, long, long ago, long before Jesus. All the way back to the time of King David is what we're looking at today. And this moment in history for David and the Israelites is a beautiful moment in their history. Because God's people, the people that David is king over, have been under immense oppression. They've been under oppression from the Philistines, the Midianites, a whole bunch of people who have been their enemies for so long. And finally, they have victory and there is peace. And that's how the chapter starts in uh, chapter 7, verse 1. See that they had finally settled and there was rest from all their enemies. And as a sign of his success, David now builds a large palace for himself. But as he looks out the window of his palace, he looks out and sees that God is dwelling in a manky old tent that has been carted around since they left Egypt. And he thinks, that's not fair. I need to do something about that. God is too good a God to live in a manky tent with mould and mildew and rips and tears and all that sort of stuff, he needs a palace equal, if not more, great than my own. And so he comes up with this great idea and he tells the prophet Nathaniel, uh, Nathan, he says, Nathan, I've got an idea. I'm going to build a house for God. Nathan says, you know what? That's the best idea I've heard for a while. Go for it. God is with you. And so Daniel thinks, sweet, oh, not Daniel, David thinks, sweet, I'm going to go build a house for God. I'm going to build a temple that, is, that will live up to the name of our great God. But that night, as we heard, Nathan gets a word from God saying, can you tell David to uh, just slow down? Actually, can you just actually go to him and say, you know the whole building a temple thing? It's a hard no. It's not going to happen. I don't want you to do it. And there's some reasons why he doesn't want that to happen. And let's have a look. I think the first reason comes up in verses 6 and 7. If you have a look with me. I think what, this, what it's saying here in these verses, verses 6 and 7, is that it seems that God is pointing out to David and to us that God is the kind of God who actually lives with his people. He's the kind of God who says, if my people are wandering, I will wander. If my people are not able to have permanent homes, then I will not have a permanent home too. Yes, things are looking on the up, 
Israel look like they've got some peace and some rest. Their God is saying, I don't want to live like a king when my people still have needs. I will live with my people, at least for now. That's the first reason. The second is this, and it's illustrated by God reminding David of who David actually is and who he was in verse 8. Have a look. Verse 8, Nathan is, is instructed to tell Daniel this. He says, Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty said, says, I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock. You hear that? This is not what David has done. God says, I took you. I took you, not you took me. God is reminding David of who he was and who is the ultimate power, who is ultimately in charge of all these things. He says, David, you are not doing anything on your own strength. What you do is out of the very grace and strength that I give you. Everything that you have achieved is not because of what you have done, but because of what I have done. The rest that you now have is not because of what you have done, but because of what I have done. You will not do anything for me. You will only do things through me. And so he says to David, you will not build me a house. I will build you a house. And this is a phrase that has deep Deep promises that will last for an eternity for David and for Israel. But for not just those, but for all of God's people as well. So for even you and me. The promise that, da- that God makes to David here that he will build a house for David that will last for all eternity is a promise for you and for me from long ago before we even knew that the promise had been made. See, in ancient times when David was around, and even a bit after, if a king came to power and defeated all his enemies and there was peace and prosperity, what he would do is he would build a monument to whatever god it was that he worshipped or whatever god it was that the people worshipped, build a temple, and then there was a surprising thing that happened. It was shocking. It was so, so shocking. Are you ready? You ready? One of the oracles, so one of the priests of that God, would come and say something to this effect. Oh, the gods say that since you have built such an amazing dwelling place for me, that you have done far better than all the other kings, that you will have peace and prosperity for all your days and you will reign for a very long time. He was like, what's so shocking about that? Well, nothing really. But it's kind of what you would expect, isn't it? If you did something for someone and they turned around and said, thank you, that's what you would expect. And then the response, though, from these gods is not just a thank you, but it's like, well, because you've done this for me, well, I better give you some things as well. So I'll give you a long reign as king or I'll give you a long reign of peace or whatever it might be. God is saying to David, he's saying, You will not do something for me and use that to manipulate me to give you anything. You need to understand that it is me who gives to you. 
I have blessed you. I have given you grace upon grace. I have given you victory upon victory. I have taken you from the pasture of nowhere to the king of my people. This is not what you have done, David, but what I have done for you. And so what we find is that just as David was chosen from a paddock of nowhere and made king, and that God gave him victory and gave him a kingdom, we are reminded too that God chose you and me from the suburb of nowhere. That he calls us and makes us sons and daughters of the God of the universe. That he gave us victory over sin and death. And that he gives us a kingdom that will last forever and ever. There's something we forget about sometimes, don't we? We forget that we are royalty. You know that? We are in the midst of royalty. If you trust in the risen Jesus, you put your faith in him, in his death and resurrection, we are told that we are heirs with Christ in the kingdom of God, where we will dwell forever and ever. You ever thought about that? It's pretty amazing. It's a far better uh, kingdom than any earthly kingdom. Because it's one that will last forever and ever and nothing will destroy it. There'll be no enemies or battles or anything to take it away from us. And so this God who makes this promise to David, a, a promise that will last forever, a promise to David, a promise to his descendants, a promise to us. God wants us to see that he is a God of grace. He says, you will not build me a house, but I will build you a house. Now, obviously, God's not talking about a building, okay? He's not talking about God's grand design with uh, Kevin MacLeod and he's going to go through all those things. That's not what he's talking about at all. He says, I will make this promise to you that I will send someone who will be a king forever so that this kingship of your descendants will endure no matter what. And that's what, he, what God uh, demonstrates for us through Nathan, we have written down here in verses 12 and 13, where we see that what God will do, he says, death won't stop my commitment to you. God says, death won't stop my promise being fulfilled. He says, David, you will die. And when you've gone to be with your ancestors, ancestors I will still keep my promise. That will not stop me from doing that. And then verses 14 and 15, where it talks about sin, it says that some of your descendants are going to sin. In fact, we don't have to wait very long because the next notable king of Israel is Solomon and we find towards the end of his reign that things go very south, that he falls and, and, and starts wandering away from God and every other king afterwards goes further and further. And God is saying that even if that happens... And it will. Sin will not stop me from filling, for from filling my promise to you and to your descendants. And then he says, in spite of all that, in spite of uh, the, um, the death, sin, none of that will stop 
In fact, even, even time won't make me forget my promise. How many times have you made a promise to do something in a few weeks' time and forgotten? Go on, join me. All right, there are a few people who are very good promise keepers. It's easy to forget, isn't it? And you make a promise and then weeks later, it's time to cash in and you're like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Or, oh, I've got something on, I didn't check the calendar. Or, oh, I've got a better offer. Oh, I really actually did want to do it in the first place and I was just trying to put it off and hoping you would forget so we wouldn't have to be in this situation that we're now in. But God is saying that not even time will stop him from fulfilling his promise. He will remember it and he will keep it. And so when he says in verse 16 that your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, your throne will be established forever. When he says that, he means it. There is nothing that is going to stop him from keeping that promise. And we know that that promise, that promise of a descendant of David who will be not just a king but the king, who will not just have a kingdom but an eternal kingdom, is something that God has revealed already to us. See, the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew we actually get a family tree of Jesus. And it starts off by saying, this is the descendants of Abraham and of David. And it tracks through all those from Abraham to David and then from David to Jesus to demonstrate and show us that Jesus was exactly who God promised to come. That he is the descendant of David. He is the king, the true king, the king with the eternal kingdom. And when we heard uh, Kate read earlier in uh, verse 14, when God says of this king who will come, when he says, I will be his father and he will be my son, we are reminded of the anointing of Jesus, the king, at his baptism. When the heavens crack open and the spirit descends on him in the form of a dove and the voice says from heaven, this is my Son, who I am well pleased. God is declaring to everyone that this is the descendant. This is the one whom I call son. This is the descendant of David, the king, who I promised all the way back then. And this is absolutely amazing. Because it means that this baby born in a manger that we celebrate at Christmas is not just a saviour, but he's also the promised king the king that God promised to David all the way back then. That he was the child of David and that he would overcome death when he rose triumphantly from the grave. That he overcame sin when he died on the cross and he paid the debt that the human race could not pay. He pays and takes the punishment that God talks about here about those who sin. Even though Jesus did not sin, he still took the punishment for God's people. He took the punishment for you and for me. The punishment that we could not pay on our own. Just as he took David out of the pasture, he takes us out of the depths of our sin and despair and wipes us clean of them. 
And just as David and Israel are experiencing a time of rest, so too as God chooses us and picks us up out of that mess of sin, he gives us peace with him. With the promise of an assurance of a promise of peace that will last forever and forever. But the question for us tonight is, what does all this mean then? What does this promise have to do with us now? Well, if Jesus is this king, then this changes everything. It changes the way that we see the world, the way we see Christmas, the way that we see ourselves and those around us. And here are just a few ways it changes everything. If Jesus is king, if he is our king, then it changes the way that we interact with one another. There's a, um, a famous Christian uh, author and theologian by the name of J.I. Packer, and he has a really, it's, it's a really confronting quote about the meaning of Christmas, uh, which he wrote in a book called Knowing God. And here is uh, basically what he says. He says, We often talk of, Chris, of the Christmas spirit, but we mean no more than a sentimental feeling especially for family, at holidays, and loved ones around us. The Christmas spirit is one of those kind of things where we limit it to the building up of nice middle-class homes, making nice middle-class friends, bringing up our children in nice middle-class ways, and leaving all those under the middle-class parts of our community and world to get on with themselves. He goes on and says that the Christmas spirit rather is this. It is the spirit of those who, like their master, like their king, live their whole lives on the principle of the one who became poor that others might become rich. They spend and they are spent giving time, energy, money, care and concern to others and not just the people like them in whatever way there seems to be a need. So if Jesus is king, it changes the way that we see everyone around us. It's not about looking for people who are like us, who are in our age demographic, who like the same things we like, who go on the same holidays, dress the same, talk the same, eat the same, walk the same. I don't know, get the same haircuts. Seems to be a thing of, of mullets kind of wandering around in packs these days. I'm sorry if anyone's got a mullet. I just find it very interesting. But there's, it's not about finding those people and sticking to them. If Jesus is king, then it changes the way that we see one another because we see that we are here not to serve ourselves but to serve others. Just as Jesus came to serve and not be served, we imitate our king. We live as he lived. Second thing is if Jesus is our king, it means that we, we work on being obedient to him. We're about to come into the, uh, Christmas and then there's New Year's. And what happens at New Year's? We make a whole bunch of promises that we will never keep, don't we? And we say they're New Year's resolutions. But because we call them New Year's resolutions, it's okay now if we don't keep them because nobody does. 
And we beat ourselves up for a little bit and we go, well, then no one really does it. Next year I'll do it better. And then next year comes around, we make the same promises and we don't keep them. Being obedient to God is not making a promise that we, that we intend to fail and give up on. Obedience is something that you don't just wake up one morning and all of a sudden, I'm obedient. I tell you, my dog didn't wake up like that. My dog didn't wake up one morning and go, yes, I'll go to the toilet when you tell me to. I will not bark when you tell me to. I'll sit exactly when you tell me. Oh, it takes time. Now, just to make it clear, I'm not saying that we are to become dogs and obedient like a dog. But our obedience to God is actually listening to him and hearing what he has to say and putting it into practice in our lives. If God says that we should live a certain way, there is reason for that. And that we should understand that reason and be obedient to that reason. So many times I hear people try out Christianity. And what I mean by that is that they go and they become Christians because they're hoping that it will improve their life or it will make them happier or it will make them wealthy or it will make just their life better or be more at peace with people. And then when that doesn't actually happen... They go, well, this Christianity thing's a load of rubbish. I tried it, it didn't work. It's because you go into following Jesus on the basis of, I will follow God if, I'll be obedient if. It's all conditional. If you said, I'm going to marry you to, a, a, to your partner or future partner, I will marry you if you promise to give me four hours of PlayStation time every day. What kind of relationship is that? That's not a relationship. That's a contract that you're entering into. One where you say, I will give you something and you give me something. That is not how relationships work. Okay? Are you over here? I know you're not like that at all, mate. That's good. But that's not how a relationship with God works either. It's not I'll serve God if we need to get rid of the ifs, drop the ifs and say, I will follow God, I will obey God because, I'll obey because of the love that God has shown me through his son Jesus, through sending his son, my king, to die for me, to take what I, to pay the ransom that I cannot pay, to take the punishment that I cannot take. And the last one is this. If Jesus is king, it means total and utter pure joy. And this joy is a joy that transcends all heartache and sadness. And if you've been through any heartbreak, you lost loved ones, or missed out on work, or whatever it might be, you'll be sitting there thinking, how can I have joy in amongst those things? And I say that joy and happiness are two different things. If you want to explore that with me later, I'll be happy to have a conversation with you about that. But we often confuse joy and happiness. Happiness is fleeting. I can be happy one minute and devastated the next. I'm happy that Australia is doing well, well in the World Cup, but come tomorrow morning I might be totally and utterly devastated. 
Because it's happiness. It's not joy. Joy is something that continues, it perseveres, it endures through the ups and downs of life. It is something that cannot be taken away from us. It is something that actually gets us through the lowest parts of our lives. Do you know the thing that got Israel through every bump on the road during their journey? Every time another enemy, another nation, another uh, army came to try and conquer them, you know what got them through every single one of those things? God. Because they turned back to God and said, God, we know you alone can save us. We know that you alone are where our hope and our joy should be. And God brought them through those ups and downs, through those battles, just as he will you. And so the joy that we have in our King Jesus is not a happy, bubbly, woo kind of joy. It is a solid joy rock of a foundation to get us through the ups and downs of life knowing that no matter what life throws at us that we are going to be with our God in heaven forever and our joy is there it is anchored on the very throne of God the very throne of Jesus and it will not be moved and that joy sometimes will be a woo joy other times it will be a somber joy of remembering of what Jesus has done to get me through the darkness that I'm going through. This joy is the joy that our King comes to bring. God's King, our King. The promised King who has come. And the joy in the knowledge that this King who came will come again. And that is the joy of Christmas. That is the joy that we remind ourselves of at, at Advent. That is the joy that we remember of the very fact that God fulfilled his promise in sending this king, the king, our king, the king of kings, as a baby who grew up to be a man to die on the cross to save you and me so that we would be in his kingdom forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and I would love to just keep going and if you can't find joy in there then you need to check your pulse because I'm not sure you're alive I mean that there is no greater joy than knowing where you will be for all eternity Because if you don't know where you are going to be, then you will stress in this life, trying to work out how you can be king of this life, how you can be king now, but be bitterly disappointed at the end when you realised that your kingdom was no kingdom at all. There was only one kingdom and one true king. And so can I encourage you tonight, if you know this joy in the King, to share it with one another, to share it with others. And if you don't know this joy that is found in the King, our King Jesus, can I encourage you tonight to talk to someone and find out more about how you can have that same joy? Let me pray.
Dear gracious God, Father, we thank you that you fulfilled your promise and fulfilled them. That in this promised King, King Jesus, not only do we have salvation, but we have a King like us, who knows us, who dwells with us, a King who has come and a King who will come again, a King who has promised to take us to be with him forever in his eternal kingdom. Father, we pray that we would grab hold tonight of that joy of knowing where we can spend eternity so that we will not stress and fret and worry and fear about this life and the next, but have pure joy in the promise of the life to come through our King Jesus. Amen.